0: We are your workmanship, Lord, and we lean on that this morning. In your name we pray, amen. We are going to go a little bit longer today, and we knew that, so all of our children's workers are aware of the facts, so... We just took a little extra time to share Teresa's story because I wanted you to hear that. I thought it was really important to us this morning. So to give you a head start, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7 here this morning. So I invite you to turn there. Most of us, if we are honest, at some level we want to impress people. We want people to, to like us, to think that we're something even special. And you think about that, in all the different settings that we have in life where we're trying to impress people. If I go to the interview... Well, I'm trying to impress that person who is interviewing me by, by the resume that I handle them, by the way that I dress, by how I even sit in a chair there, by, by maybe the stories that I tell. Or maybe we want to impress the girl or the guy, could be either direction. I can remember back when I was uh, still in my dating time, I, I had a first date with this girl, it's not my wife, and, and maybe it has something to do with this story. But I took this girl, and I wanted to impress her, so I took her to this nice restaurant in South Bend. Uh, Jeremiah Squeenies is what it's called. It's no longer there, but uh, it was it was pretty nice, and so I um, thought that was impressive. Just to start with it, I took her there. It had a salad bar. Do you remember those? A salad bar, and uh, we sat down, and, and had, you know, like cloth linens, and so we sat down at the table, and I put the— and I put the napkin in my lap, just like mom taught me, because I'm trying to impress this girl. Well, it was time to go. We made it, place our orders. i like, you can go to the salad bar now. So I got up and set my napkin on the uh, table there. And, and I went to the salad bar and got my stuff and came back in. And I sat down, sat my plate down. Well, while I had been gone, the waitress had come and set down a big bowl of rolls or basket of rolls there on the table. And so I sat down and grabbed my napkin to pick it up, but I didn't realize I grabbed the wrong napkin. I grabbed the one that was in the actual basket of rolls, and I went like this to, to, you know, and like there are rolls everywhere in the restaurant. I th- we might have had another date or two after that, but it was, it was, it was in bad shape after that, right? So, but we want to impress people. We want to impress the neighbors. We want to impress uh, the people in, in the room with us. And we do all kinds of things to try to get them impressed with us. We, we tell our stories, or we listen to them tell their stories, and we try to tell our better story. Oh, well, you did this? Well, I've been here. And, and we do that kind of things because we want people to be impressed with us. And I don't think it's all bad. I think it's actually part of being culturally aware. It's like I am concerned about you and I'm I'm interacting with you in a way that you know is got some reciprocity here and where we can where we can you know show respect back and forth as part of being appropriate. The problem is that we often go too far. And the problem is we are way too concerned about impressing people and and why is that? Why is it so important to us to impress people? I was just thinking about that even this morning. I think I try to impress people sometimes because it just, well, it gives us worth. I mean, if you think I'm okay, well, then I feel better about myself because I I think I'm okay. You think I'm okay. We both think I'm okay. And, and, And it gives me validation and sense of worth. Sometimes it gives me like status. Not only am I okay, but if you think I'm you know, even a little bit more than okay, then, well, that's even better. And so I can feel better about myself because, because I have some status and there's more than just one person who likes me or looks up to me. And so we want, you know, to impress people for that reason. Sometimes we want to impress people because it gives us privilege or reward or leverage. So like, if you think I'm okay and I've impressed you, well, then I can hope to get something back from you. Maybe I can get your affection. Maybe I can get your, your um, appreciation. And maybe you can even do a favor for me. And, and, and maybe it's even like that trade-off. But if I can impress the right people in life, well, they can do the most for me too. Like if I can write, impress the right person in the company, well, he can do the most for me. And so we want to do it for, the, for the, what we get in return. And sometimes we want to impress people because it just gives us power. And if I can, you know, if I can impress you, then then that raises my status. And when my status goes up, then I have more power to do what I want to in life, to have what I want to have in life. Well, I think a lot of us fall into that trap of trying to impress people. But at the same time, I think there's somebody that we may want to impress or that we sometimes try to impress, but maybe not in the right way. And that person is God. God. And if you are like me this morning, I'm gonna move that because it's rocking. If you are like me this morning, you want to impress God. You want God to look at me and say, "Well, yeah, good guy there." Like, um, I'm glad I got him on the team. Like Jesus, I'm glad. I'm glad that's one of the ones we picked here. I, and I, and I, I want him to feel like I'm contributing something to His kingdom, and that He's looking at me and saying, "Yeah." And look at how look at how well he's doing it. Like following. Uh, the teachings of the Bible, look at how he's doing it, loving his neighbor, and look at how he's doing it, and loving me, and I want God to be impressed with me, but I'm not sure he's as impressed as I hope he is, and I'm not sure it matters if he is, but I want to ask this question this morning, and I want to ask several other questions too this morning, but the question is this, how does a person impress God, and it's not the same way that we impress people. And to study this idea this morning, we're going to look at a story of a guy who impressed Jesus. In fact, the words that it says is that he amazed Jesus. Jesus looked at this guy, stood back, and said, whoa, think about that. Has Jesus ever looked at you and said, whoa, And that's exactly what happens to this story, and it's a really, really unlikely person who actually impresses Jesus. So we're in Luke chapter 7. We're going to read this, and as we read this morning, we're going to throw up some of our storyboards here. We're going to retell the story, or we're going to to read through the story and think about how we would retell it in film or video or, or movie style, and what the different scenes are of this story as we go along. And as we read through this story, though, I've been asking you to say, okay, how would you put this into a film? And and giving you that, you know, as we read through it, how would you do that? But I want to do one more thing this morning. As we read through it, I want you to think through what questions that you have from this story. Because when I read through this story, first of all, we already know the ending. He impresses Jesus. I'm like, well, why did he impress Jesus? But then there are other questions that kind of come up in this story that I want to look at this morning. But as we read, I want to encourage you, what are the questions that come out of the story to you? So let's read in Luke chapter 7 here. Verse number 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Now, when he had just finished saying all this, what is that talking about? Jesus had just finished the Sermon on the Mount, and he is moving from the countryside there into the town, the neighboring town there of Capernaum. And it says that in verse number two, then a centurion's servant, and that word could actually be translated a slave, whom the master valued highly. That's an interesting word there, isn't it? He valued this slave. He was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And let's just take a minute to to look at that verse, because that verse tells us a lot that's really going to matter to us in this story. First of all, it tells us that he's a centurion. As a centurion, that means that he is part of the Roman army, which the Roman army was occupying um, Israel at that time. And and they weren't really welcome. They weren't welcome by the Jews and and they, they kind of like ruled with the iron fist idea. And so he was part of that army and he was a ruler in that army. But it also meant that not only was he an outsider and, and, you know, the person looking over, he was also not a Jew. He was a Roman. And, and so um, he didn't really have a whole lot of connection there with the, uh, with, with the Jewish community as far as nationality goes. He has some clout. He's in charge. He's a centurion, so he'd be like a captain in an army. He's risen up the ranks, and, and he's got some power that comes with that. But he's also an interesting person. And that we see a little bit of his character, because he's really concerned about this slave. Now, it's not about one of his soldiers. It's not like he's going to lose a a key person from his, his regiment there. It's that there's a slave in his household that is sick, and he's so concerned about this slave that he's got to do something about it. And so he goes to the Jews to find help, which you would think there might be animosity there, but obviously there isn't. In fact, there seems to be friendship there. He goes to the Jews to help him. and It says he goes to the elders, and we don't know exactly what that means. Does that mean the the elders in the synagogue, and that's very possible. The synagogue was not the temple, but it was like the the building where religious education went on. And so there was a synagogue there in, in, uh, in Capernaum, and did he go to those elders and ask them to go to Jesus? Or did he just go to the city magistrates, like the mayor or the city council, and ask them to go to Jesus? But what he's doing is he's finding some Jews To go to Jesus on his behalf. So they agree. In verse number four, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly or urgently with him this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and because he has built our synagogue. And then we learn a few more things about this guy. He's wealthy. He's wealthy enough that he can build a synagogue, which is a pretty significant piece of architecture. And he's not only wealthy, he's generous with his wealth. And not only is he generous with his wealth, he's giving his wealth to the religion of the Jews that he's not part of. And so we see he has great sympathies or great even attraction and affection for the Jews. And we assume for the Jewish faith. Now, if you want to find an impressive guy, here he is. Captain in the army, respected by even the enemies, wealthy, generous, caring. Even, like I mean, I look at that guy, and you can look, you respect him for some of this, impressed by what he has. But I'm also impressed by who he is, too. And yet, he still needs help, and he still has a problem that he can't solve. And he knows it. You ever have a problem that you can't solve? Impressing people doesn't fix it. Have you noticed that? You need something else. And this guy, with all that he had, stands there helpless and says, hmm, I'm not sure what I can do about that. And I think what happens here, too, is this guy is reminded, and maybe he didn't even need the reminder. But we're really never all that. And especially we are confronted with that sometimes in our life when things come up against us that are way more than what we can handle. And, and all, of the, all of that trying to impress people, we know it's just kind of a lie because we, can't, we know we can't even handle what we're facing or what we're dealing with. Well, let's start building our storyboards. We're going to pause our reading here and let's throw up our first storyboard. This is scene number one, and we're going to do a special effect as we tell our story this week. We're going to put it in split screens. So as you could fi- picture this on a movie screen, there's going to be either a box in box or, or maybe they even run side by side of two scenes because all of this story, as we read through it, there's two things happening at the same time in two different locations. And so we're going to try to stay in those locations as best we can and tell the story that way. So we see it here. We have on, the, on, the, on your left, We have this sixth slave, and we see the the centurion there. He's standing there in green, and he's concerned about his slave, and so he calls in these elders and says, hey, would you mind going and talking to Jesus? And, well, Jesus, meanwhile, is just wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount there and and is, is about to head into town. So we go to scene number two then. Well, he sends those people, but he doesn't go with them. Maybe he doesn't go with them because He knows he's a a Gentile, and and maybe that wouldn't be appropriate. Maybe he doesn't go with him simply because he's staying behind and trying to take care of the slave, so his slave's not by himself. Or we don't really know, but he chooses not to go. Instead, he sends, and so we see that going on, and and the man continuing, or the centurion continuing to take care of his slave there, while the elders that he talked to in the last scene approach Jesus, who's coming down from the Sermon on the Mount, and he starts to have this conversation with them. And the conversation is is what? You need to come help this guy because he deserves it. Now, keep that statement in mind. It's important to the story. We read in verse number six, so Jesus went with them, and that leads us to our next scene, which is where we see uh, Jesus then going with the elders back to, or not back to, but going to the centurion's house where the slave lies sick. And I kind of picture this, As these are going side by side, he sent these elders, not exactly knowing if, you know, if they'll get an audience with Jesus to start with, if Jesus will be open to coming back and and talking to this. And I kind of picture this guy pacing in the house, waiting to get some word. He's like, coming? Are they not coming? Are they coming? Are they not coming? And there's a window there. And every once in a while, he stops and looks out the window and, you know, paces back and forth. And he stops and he looks out the window and he sees some people running back in his direction. And it tells us in verse number six, um, Jesus was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him. And so we go to the next scene here. If we can advance that. Number four. Well, these couple messengers have evidently run ahead of Jesus and his entourage here. And they've run ahead back to tell the centurion that, hey, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And the centurion stops and says, oh, wait, time out. I don't need him to come to the house. I just need him to take care of, the sur- of my slave here. Tell him he doesn't need to come. And maybe that was even to say, don't come into my house. I'm a Gentile. That will make you unclean. And so that's going on. But we also see in this other scene of Jesus just walking back here or walking to the centurion's house, but I put it in front of the synagogue. And I wonder as they wander or went through the streets of Capernaum to this soldier's place, if they didn't walk by that synagogue that the, that the elders had already told Jesus about. And, and maybe as they walk by, they're kind of you know, doing one of these, trying to get Jesus to notice the synagogue that he's built. But you know what's interesting about that synagogue? Is it was a familiar place to Jesus. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, verse number 21, there's a story of a healing of, of a man who is demon-possessed, and it takes place in the synagogue. It's this synagogue. It's the synagogue at Capernaum. We think Jesus' home base was Capernaum, so we think a lot of times the Scripture talks about him teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. It was probably this Synagogue. In fact, one of the more famous teachings or discourses of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse number 59, it tells us that the bread of life discourse that Jesus gave, he gave it in this synagogue. And so as Jesus walks back, or Jesus walks to this man's house, maybe, just maybe, he walks by this synagogue that has actually played a role in his ministry. So there's this sense that this guy has actually built the building that Jesus is using. Kind of cool to think about, isn't it? Well, the messenger runs ahead with the news. centurion, sends him back out to meet Jesus, And, and and they sends a different set of messengers out there. And so we go ahead to the next scene. But it reminds us of something here. As they go, he says this, I am not worthy. You've just been told... That, that you need to come because I've done all these great things for the Jews and so I say I'm a great guy. That's not why you need to come. And that's not the basis of your helping me. In other words, you don't owe me anything. In fact, it's even beyond that. I'm not deserving of anything that you get. I'm not worthy of anything. Anything I get is from you because of you and not because of me. Well, he's just totally flipped the script in that moment. Because up till now, it's been all about the guy, what a great guy he is and how deserving he is to have Jesus help him. And this guy turns around and says, no, 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 no. That's wrong, Jesus. I'm not deserving. This isn't about me. This isn't even about my slave. This is about you and who you are. And so we see in verse number seven, the story goes on here, and he says, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. And so his messengers go back to Jesus, and they tell him this, you know, you don't need to come. Just stop where you are, Jesus. You don't, you don't need to go any further. Just say the word, and if you'll do that, this slave will be healed. And it's really interesting here to me, as we've looked at stories the last three weeks about Jesus healing people or helping people, in every case, it's because Jesus touched that person. In the case of the woman who's bleeding, she actually touched Jesus. And then, and then the, the boy who had the, 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 the demon, Jesus reached down and picked him up. Even as, as, as Peter sank in the waves, Jesus reached down and lifted him up. And this time, it shifts. And it it's totally different. And this guy says, all I need you to do is just say the word. And I know that that will take care of it. And he goes on in verse number eight and explains his thinking, for I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go. And he goes and this one, come. And he comes. I say to my servant, do this. And he does it. And what is he doing? He's explaining his thought process. And in the same time, he's actually expressing his faith. What he's saying is, Jesus, I get who you are. And I am more than willing to acknowledge who I am. And there's no comparison here. Now, I have authority. My authority is nothing compared to your authority. I can say somebody go and he goes, and I can say come and he comes, and it's just what I say. That's what happens. But that's nothing compared to who you are and what you can do. And so I'm just begging you, pleading with you on the basis of your authority to do something on my behalf here. It's interesting to me how he starts this. He says, I know how authority works. I'm underneath it myself. Well, most people would have seen him as an authority. He says, I have a superior, and I recognize that I'm underneath that superior, but I'm also underneath you in this situation. And so we get to scene five. Scene five, the centurion has sent the messengers back to meet with Jesus. And so they come back and say, hey, don't come. Don't come. Just say the words. That's all that he's asking him uh, to to say here. And we get to verse number 9, and here's what we started with this morning. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And he's talking to the crowd, not to the man here, because the man's still back in the house. And the the man who had sent returned to the house and found the servant well. And we can go to that last scene there, and we find this this servant slave sitting up, and he's well, and the centurion's there, but Jesus is still over there with the crowds, and he's talking to the crowds and saying, I have never found faith like this. I am so amazed by this guy. So As I look through this story, I think this story gives us the idea of how do we impress Jesus then, even though we really can't. So it's a little bit of a paradox, but I think as we look at these questions, I think it gives us an answer here. So here are my five questions. First of all, were the centurion and the slave deserving of Jesus coming and healing? The answer is no. He wasn't deserving and it wasn't just because he was a Gentile, although that was part of it. And it wasn't the you know he wasn't deserving, and he wasn't deserving because he had built a synagogue or anything like that. He was actually undeserving. And any privilege or pleasure that he was going to enjoy or or, or need that was going to be met was not going to be based on his deservedness. And that is so encouraging to me. Because there are times when I need to go to Jesus, and I'm feeling like I need to go, but I haven't been doing great. Like, my faith's not that good, and, you know, I, I messed up over here, and I don't think I can go because I don't think I've earned it. You can never earn it, and you can never be deserving. And this centurion, as great as he was, was completely undeserving and there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves discerning and that's the, that's the story of the gospel isn't it? Jesus Christ comes because I am not good enough and I can never be good enough to please God because of my sin. So Jesus comes as the righteous one dies in my place, Buried, raises again, we put our faith in him, and he becomes our righteousness because we don't have any. And so our hope from heaven is based on the idea of not my goodness, but Jesus. But my hope, even in my relationship with God, is still based on that. So I don't ever arrive in prayer before God and say, Hey God, I have this prayer request, and I'm really counting on you, and I think I've done enough here. You know, check my list that you're going to come through for me. I can't do it to start with, and I don't need to do it. I could come to God and say, you know what, God? I'm a wreck. I'm broken. I'm messed up. I'm undeserving. And that is absolutely okay. In fact, when we get to that place, it changes our relationships. Key point. Grace is only available to those who are undeserving. Think about that one. Grace is only available to those who are undeserving. If you're deserving, you don't need grace. Isn't it good news this morning? We all qualify for grace. And that's what this guy comes to Jesus, hey, I need grace. And we can all come to Jesus and say, I'm undeserved this morning, I need grace. And here's what gets even better. Jesus is drawn to the undeserving who know that they need grace. John 1, when it said that Jesus came, it says that he came full of grace and truth. Why did he come full of grace? Because he was coming to the undeserving who desperately needed it and could do nothing on their own. Jesus is drawn to the undeserving who know that they need grace. And we can have hope of God's blessing in our lives today because we don't have to earn it. And because we can never deserve it. And so we don't have to worry about having enough spiritual capital to finally get God to say, okay, you've measured up. I think I can bless you now. It just doesn't work that way. So the centurion acknowledged his own deservedness. And we can do the same. Second question, why did he appeal to Jesus' authority? I think it's because he actually understood what authority is all about. Authority is not about power. Authority is about taking the resources that you've been giving them and using them as they're intended. So when we have people who have authority or in a positions of authority and they take the research they're given and they misuse them or they misuse the people that work for them or whatever, that's not authority or that's not good authority. That's just an abuse of power. Authority is saying, I've been put in a situation where I can take what I've been given, I can use it for somebody else. I can be taking what I've been given as a centurion and I can make life better for the people that are under my responsibility here. I can even build them a temple. And so he's understanding what authority is. And so he appeals to Jesus' authority, which is just fascinating to me because he doesn't appeal to his power, although power is wrapped up in authority. He doesn't even appeal to his mercy, although I think he does. He comes and says, you've got authority. You are in control and you are in command in my life. God is the ultimate authority. And we can take comfort in that or we can be threatened by that. I, could take, I can be threatened by it because there's somebody telling me what to do and somebody who like, you know, has a standard that I'm supposed to be living to. But I can be comforted by the fact that there is absolutely nothing in my life that is beyond God that he can't handle. And when I put that together with the fact that I don't have to be worthy, that's pretty encouraging. So this situation, there's some hope here because Jesus has authority. God is the ultimate authority, and the, and the centurion recognizes that and appeals to that authority. The third question that we come to is this one. Where was Jesus exactly? This one is a great mystery in me in the story. So if you go back here, I think we can get, I think the next slide actually is C number five. If you look at this, it's a little bit different from the first time we looked at it. And that we have a blue presence over in the in the realm uh, of the room there where the servants lying sick. So the question is where is Jesus in the moment that the servants healed? Physically, he's standing with the crowd. Spiritually, somehow, he's in the room healing the man. And it's such a great reminder to us of the fact that. That Jesus is present with us now. We, we say that Jesus in person, you know, his body is in heaven, and yes, that's true. But Jesus exists beyond just his body. He exists in spirit as well. And so he was actually in both places at the same time. And so if I'm doing this movie, here's what I do with this scene. I take Jesus over here, where, where he's standing with the crowd, and I take this over here, and somehow... We kind of merge these scenes together because Jesus is present in both places, one in body, one in spirit, but in power in both places. But it's a reminder to us, first of all, that this realm that we live in isn't just what we see. And so we may not see Jesus in person with us today, but we can be assured that he is with us. In fact, he said that to his disciples, right? And lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. And so when I'm in these moments when I don't know what to do, when I'm undeserving, when I'm appealing to God's authority, I can also be assured of the fact that in that moment, Jesus stands with me. Wow, what an encouragement. And Jesus is sovereign. And Jesus' word is all-powerful. And Jesus is omnipresent. And he is with you in this moment. And so we've gone with this split-screen approach the whole time. What's fascinating to me is Jesus and this man never have a conversation. It's just with the messengers that get sent back and forth. And yet this man 100% experienced the healing of Jesus in his servant slave. But I think he probably also experienced the healing of Jesus in his own heart and life. And so the next question is, why did Jesus decide to help? Was it the man's faith or was it his, Jesus' compassion? Probably both. Because Jesus went to help not because of any deservedness. He just went to help because somebody asked him and somebody was dying a slave, bottom rung of society, he needs help, I am on my way. Gentile, no problem. Unworthy, no problem. You know, poor, no problem. Indebted to somebody else, no problem. I am moving towards that. And we can be reminded of the fact that our hope for help is based on Jesus' love and mercy. But let's just finish with this question. What does great faith look like? Or how can we amaze Jesus? You know, what's crazy in this story is the Jews, and this was what they did all the time. They were trying to impress God. You know, I, I say this prayer, or, or I give my offerings, or whatever. They were constantly trying to impress God, and they come to Jesus with this centurion's request, and what do they do? They, they go into default mode. Okay, Jesus, you've got to help this guy, because he's built you a temple or a synagogue, and, you know, he, he helps all of his Jews, and he likes us. And that's totally wrong. Jesus is not drawn to our self-righteousness. He's drawn to our undeservedness. So what does great faith look like? How do we impress Jesus, believe it or not? It's crazy son, I impress Jesus by saying, I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. I'm undeserving. I've really got nothing to offer you. But I know you are God. I know you are the authority. I know you have all power. I know you can just speak the word. I know that you are here with me. That's enough for me. And so I will put my trust in you. And wait to see what you do. And that's when Jesus steps back and goes, Whoa, that's amazing. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I am so grateful for the fact that you're not looking for deserved people, deserving people. You're looking for people like me and the rest of us as we sit in this room. Thank you for your grace that comes to us, that lifts us up out of our mess, that gives us forgiveness in Jesus Christ, gives us hope, and then gives us help even in this life. And even when you're not present, where we can't see you. You are present in our lives. And I'm so grateful. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, he wants to be with you in this moment. He's not looking here for you to be good enough. He's looking for you to admit the fact that you're not and ask him into your life. You can do that where you sit this morning. A simple prayer between you and him. But maybe you're sitting here and you've trusted Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to be reminded this morning of the fact that you're not deserving, but it doesn't matter because we live in this grace that he gives us. And whatever that need is, maybe this morning you need to take it to Jesus and say, I need your authority in this situation, Jesus. You can, and I'm trusting that you will. And maybe you need to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, just give me a sense of your presence here with me. Jesus, thank you for what you offer us. That we don't have to be good enough because you are good enough. That you have grace for us, that you have mercy for us, and that you have love for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us? Chris is gonna finish us with a hymn this morning. They might be familiar to you, but the the tune is too hard. So we've given it a familiar tune. But I want you to think about the words that we sing as we finish here this morning.